Hello and welcome to this special edition of Revenue Riser, all about virtual sales kickoffs with your host, Anna Britnell Guest. Now, over the years, I've attended a number of kickoffs and I love the energy of a sales kickoff, but I've also been concerned that they can be a little bit too event driven. A moment in time where the team comes together, connects over food, drinks and the endless coffee, revs up in excitement for the year ahead and then dissipates back to the four corners of the globe. So I've been advocating a rethink of how we deliver kickoffs to both nurture the relationships and create learning that directly and intentionally impacts on performance and revenue. And you can check out my blog page via revenueriser.com for more ideas and checklists on this. I also think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we're being forced to question and be more creative about how we do up a whole bunch of things. And I think sales kickoffs of the future will truly benefit from this more virtual experience now and have the opportunity to emerge as a best of all world blended event in 2022. More on that next year. For this episode, what I want to focus in on is how to create a kickoff that genuinely impacts on your sales capability to deliver the numbers in 2021. To demonstrate and and help to give some real world examples of this, I'm really excited to welcome three guests to this episode. Shortly, Jasmine Jackson-Irwin of Circle CI and Nick Salas of Mindtickle will share their stories. But first, I asked Edward Boone of High Performance Learning Journey Leaders Promote International to share some research-based advice on, on how to ensure that the learning you deliver has real impact out in the field and on your results. I started by asking Ed where companies should begin in their SKO planning processes. Thinking of these things more of a as a journey than an event. I think that there is the there is the essence of it and you kind of build on it from there. I, I'm coming at it from a learning perspective. You could come at it from a change perspective. We know that any change that holds over time, any learning that sticks over time, um, it's it's treated as a it's treated as a journey. Think of any skill. All of us are all of us are pretty good at something. You didn't do that in an afternoon, or you didn't do that in a couple of days. You didn't learn that in a couple of days. Uh, so it required some form of kind of knowledge input. You needed to get the basics. You needed to understand what what it was conceptually, and then it required an awful lot of practice over time. And you could probably achieve it by yourself given a long long enough timeline. But of course, with any of these complex things, you you often drop off over time. You sort of go, it's not not going as well as you thought it was. And maybe it's not quite as much fun as you thought it was. So you give up. So having someone that's supporting you or someone that's giving you feedback, pointers in the right direction will not only kind of keep you on that track over time, but it will also make that track Shorter. If you're getting qualified feedback over time, qualified um, guidance on what's working and what's not and what have you, then seeing that as a process, seeing that as an ongoing journey is going to be is going to be more effective over time. That's quite simply how change works, how learning works and and sales kickoffs are no different. If you're trying to achieve a result at the end of the day, a sales kickoff is no different. So it sounds like, and I think we've we've seen this from a manager's perspective, it's easy to think, right, my sales guys are going to turn up at the kickoff. We're going to hear all this great stuff. Um, they're going to be inspired. They're going to learn. And now, actually, as a manager, I've got to do something about that at the end of the kickoff. So what, what sort of things should managers, sales managers, be thinking about doing to support their teams? 
I suppose it's deceiving, right? Where it's been a good event, right? Because I'm sure a lot of these events are good. And people leave, you know, they've they've met their colleagues. Um, they've had some really inspirational talks by some really inspirational people and people are pumped up. And it's deceiving because you, you imagine that that's going to carry people forwards, right? But it simply doesn't. There's plenty of research to suggest that as people get out there, they meet the real world and things don't go as quickly or as well as they thought they would. You know, as people come away from their colleagues and maybe don't have those daily touch points with their colleagues, um, it's easy for that momentum to get lost, for that initial euphoria uh, to get lost. So so what a manager can be doing, coming back to your question, is I mean, follow-up is a very broad term, right? So, so I'm going to try and just be a little bit more specific about it. In fact, we, we just did some research in our organization um, with uh, two universities, University of Western Michigan and um, University of Michigan Flint. And what we did was we were looking at, in a learning environment, what type of support should a manager give for a learner to actually use what they've learned in the most impactful ways possible in a sustained manner. And it turns out you can divide these areas of support into three categories. One is general guidance and advice, thinking about the best ways to employ the strategies that we've talked about at the kickoff. It could be um, sort of discussing, you know, what that manager did when they met a similar challenge, those sorts of things. Then there is the more sort of directive behavioral guidance and setting goals, having feedback conversations, formalized feedback and coaching conversations to talk about how it's going, feedback on performance, those sorts of things. So like more behavioral and more directive, actually getting involved. And then there's a third category, uh, which is more sort of empathizing side of things, showing respect for an individual competence, um, helping people get back up and get back on the horse when things don't go according to plan. As I say, it's, it's all too easy to sort of go to the, after the sales kickoff or after the learning event, you follow up, right? If you get more nuanced about it, you've got those three categories of general guidance, directive behavioral assistance, and then that sort of empathizing side of things. And that'll set you on the right track. There's clearly an important role for the manager in this, but it shouldn't just be on the manager, should it? No, we have our um, high performance learning journey methodology. And, And one of the things that we talk about there is we often talk about like stretching things on time. You can stretch an event on time to make it into more of a journey. Uh, but then we say that there are various other dimensions that you can stretch on, one of them being relationships. So the thing is, is that anyone who's listening to this who who might be in a, in a managerial or leadership position, they're probably having a heart attack or palpitations at this moment in time because they're sort of going, oh, my God, I'm, all, I'm already a busy person. Um, I'm not sure how I'm going to be fitting in all of this support. So putting all of that support on on one individual is probably unrealistic. So another one of the things that we can do is we can set up sort of mechanisms. We can set up dynamics where you've got peer support, sort of groups of peers supporting each other. One of the best ways to keep people accountable, to keep people on track, is to allow them to hear how other people are doing. And I mean, both the positive side of things, but also the challenge side of things. So sort of hearing about how people have, you know what, I was out at this, I was out at this customer the other week, and um, I ran into this objection. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me, I can handle the objection in a completely different way than I normally do. So I tried this, and it worked like a dream. Recommend anybody else giving that a try when you meet that 
that objection. This is one good way we can do it. But also when people meet challenges, just hearing the other people in the same boat is marvelously powerful. As long as you then turn it into something, into something positive and sort of say, you know, well, this is how we can solve it. Let's look at strategies for the way we can solve that. We've talked a lot about the after, and I think that's really critical to this because it is where the, the change happens and, and where it gets embedded. And in fact, we've got a conversation coming up with uh, Nick Salas at MindTickle in this episode where he gives a really good example of how they've followed up in a way that does require manager input, but also has a has a benefit and a learning impact for everybody, which is which is really interesting. What should companies be thinking about in the lead up? So we've talked about the after, but what should they be thinking about in terms of before and during the event? And particularly as you talk about stretching these things over over time, relationships and so on. So what sort of things should companies be thinking about? The critical thing there, and again, this is sort of going back to the research of um, the likes of Professor Robert Brinkhoff. He's been looking at this for 30, 40 odd years. One of the things we know is that as people go into a learning intervention, right, if people are focused and they have intentionality, right, so they, they know why they're there, they know what is expected of them, then that increases the chance of them using that learning, performing those behaviors in impactful and sustained ways after uh, any kind of event um, significantly. This is another one of these ways in which we can stretch. So we call it stretching on business linkage. And what I'd like to underline here is a a learning event, it will often have what we call like a nominal business linkage. So it'll be be like, we want to increase sales. So we're going to do some sales training, right? So what you're doing there is you're saying sales training, leads to increased sales results. And the problem there is you're missing out a bit. You're going straight from learning to results and the world doesn't work that way. There's this bit with behavior in the middle, right? And people need to understand that it's it's not we're doing some some sales training to increase sales results. What we're doing is we're increasing we're doing some sales training which will then be transformed into behavior on the job which in turn will produce results out in the field for the organization. Now, when people understand what behavioral changes are required of them, that's when it transfers into sustainable increased results for the organization. And it's that when I say focus and intentionality going in, it's having conversations about what I'm going to learn, how I'm going to use it on the job and how that's going to turn into results. So what I'm trying to be clear about here is just sort of going, oh, we're going to we're, we're going to do a sales kickoff. We're going to do some sales training in order to improve sales results. That will not get you the results. People will not have the focus and intentionality that they need. It's when they understand the behavioral changes that are required on them going into that scenario that that will translate into results later on. I think that's really, really critical. And as as you know, as a, an HPLJ practitioner um, fully bought into that and, and making that that connection um I think one of the things I'm I'm seeing really interestingly is more focus on that amongst those who are organizing sales kickoffs because they're having to think about doing this virtually they are stretching out over time and they are thinking about what can they do recorded on demand particularly where they've got multiple time zones to manage and then how do they break down what would be an intensive two, maybe three day kickoff all in person into more bite sized chunks over Zoom that keep people more engaged? I, I am seeing, I think, more intentionality around what other topics we're covering, who's covering those and 
what guidance are we giving to our presenters to make sure that what they talk about is aligned to the theme and the topics and the goals of the kickoff and done in a way that is short and sharp and engaging that people can consume in a more virtual, perhaps on-demand way. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your experiences of building out that you know the, the during, how that delivers that intentionality and then gives managers and others something to work with afterwards? You, you touched on a couple of points there that I, I would um, I'd like to expand on. The first was the the opportunities presented by um, the virtual environment. So so I, I would absolutely not claim that it's it's all fun and games. You know, uh, when we get together for these events, there are many, many people that they're people oriented and actually looking someone in the eye, shaking their hand. That's an important part of, of that event. So so I don't say it's all fun and games. However, the virtual world presents certain benefits. You, you touched on this idea of bite-sized pieces, uh, Anna. One of the things that you can't do in a, in a sort of the, the you know the physical face-to-face environment, for, if you're if you're flying in people from all over the world, um, you're not going to break that down over a long period of time. It's just not cost-effective, right? If plus, I mean, it would just be too bitty. You'd be flying for a day for a sh- for a you know, a half a day's conference. So virtual allows you to do this in a cost-effective way. It allows you to do the live the bite-sized dream, right? Because let's face it, people can't people can't consume that much input. Like but after a day of people presenting at you, um, you are just there's no way that you are going to take all that with you. So breaking this down into bite-sized pieces and virtual allows you to live that bite-sized dream is a huge advantage. Second of all, what you want to be doing here, which I mean, it's probably easier face to face, but it's by no means impossible in a virtual world. And that's getting a high degree of involvement. Right. So we've we talked about you do want to get those inspirational speakers in, but you want to get people involved. If you want to get people buying into this, seeing themselves as part of this, uh, then there needs to be opportunities for them to to interact, get involved, um, share their own stories, those sorts of things. So this is a very practical point now. Give some thought to how you want to structure it. You can get some really good breakout sessions, put people into smaller groups, get them discussing things, have them come back, debrief, all the rest of it. So you can get some really good dynamics going there. And then the other thing that you touched upon there was, you know, how do you get your presenters ready? How do you get them so that they are aligned and telling the same story? A few moments ago, we talked about this sort of stretching on business linkage, but I took it more from the perspective of a participant. Of course, that stretch on business linkage, if we're doing it properly, it applies to all stakeholders involved in this. Everybody has to have that same picture of why we're there, what what we're what we're sort of discussing, the strategy that, that we're aiming for, and how that how that is going to encourage new or different or improved behaviors on the job. Everyone has to be having that same picture going into this. Um, and and then as we're going through it, all of those, if you've truly got that alignment, then those the messages that are presented during the event should all line up anyway to a much greater extent. So Ed's clearly outlined some key proven practices for designing and delivering experiences which turn learning into behavior change and into results. And I wanted to share some real-world examples of companies doing really good things in this area for their kickoffs and sales events. First up, Jasmine Jackson-Irwin, Sales Enablement Manager at Circle CI. 
I was particularly interested to hear from Jasmine because Circle CI are in the unusual position of having done one virtual kickoff, unexpected and unplanned, um, and are now already planning their second. And I wanted to find out what they did first time around and how that's shaping their plans for their upcoming event. I was also really impressed by the intentionality to use Ed's word in their approach. So let's dive straight in with Jasmine. I think the thing that's important to understand about how Circle CI's revenue team looks at kickoffs is that we view them very much not as a single one-off event. They are as much a part of our training curriculum for the year as any other training um, or learning and development program that we do. So historically, we've actually done kickoffs twice a year. We have our big, you know, right at the start of the fiscal year kickoff that is typically for about a week. And then about six months through the year, generally between the Q2 and start of Q3, we have a smaller kickoff that's a couple of days. And of course, the first kickoff is meant to be the big kind of rallying cry for the year, get everyone excited and motivated. And then the mid-year kickoff is meant to sort of look back and see how has the first half of the year been? Where are we going, going into the second half of the year? And what changes do we need to make to make sure that the second half of the year continues to be successful? So I think this is a model that certainly in larger organizations is not always uh, easily accessible from a resource standpoint, just by nature of how large the teams are. But for us as a growing startup, it's been a really important way of staying connected, especially with a globally distributed team. So for the virtual kickoff that we planned uh, back in September, there was a little bit of sort of a change with every aspect of it. So first and foremost, we had planned to have it much earlier in the year, and that was originally pushed out because of a delayed kickoff that we had last year. So our timing was sort of off kilter from the start because of that. And then as the coronavirus pandemic started to take hold and our offices closed down and we moved to all remote work, there was a big question of, can we even do an in-person kickoff at this point? Because I had previously been planning for our biggest in-person kickoff. It was going to be travel for our entire global team. And all of a sudden we had to really pump the brakes on that. And so it put me and my team in a position of deciding, okay, do we try to move forward with the event that we had in mind or do we completely scrap it and do something different? And ultimately it was somewhere a little bit in between. So we ultimately decided to take the same volume of content that we would typically have in a four day event and spread it out across over two weeks. And the way that we were able to achieve that was by doing a a blend of digital e-learning and our learning management system, and then what I would call, quote unquote, in-person sessions, which were our speaker series that we had over uh, Zoom conferencing. And so the ultimate flow of the event was that the first half of the first week focused on those speaker series. We tried to cluster them to uh, a couple of hours in the morning and a couple of hours in the late afternoon. I'm based in San Francisco. So when I say morning and afternoon, it's Pacific time. And a big part of that was to make it accessible to our global teams. We're split across offices in San Francisco, Denver, Boston, in the US, and then London and Tokyo globally. So there's no time zone where we can all be together. And we found that grouping those, those meetings together at the start of the day was accessible for our East Coast team members and our European team. And then doing some in the evening was accessible for our um, Asia Pacific team. And so that gave us an opportunity to make sure that 
everyone across the global organization had some amount of face time with each other, with our executive team that was presenting, with our special guest speakers that we included. And then after that, we moved into the bulk of the training material, which was in our LMS. And the benefit of doing it in that way was that it immediately avoided the issue of Zoom fatigue, which I knew was going to be a problem. And I didn't want to have folks sitting on Zoom for eight hours a day, because frankly, I didn't want to sit on Zoom for eight hours a day. And so it it avoided the Zoom fatigue and it allowed our team to have a little bit more flexibility in terms of how they completed the training, how they engaged with the event as they were balancing their regular workload. And there were definitely some pitfalls to that approach that I think will change moving forward. But I we got rave reviews from our team on having the kind of training delivered through a digital channel in the way that we did to a degree that actually really surprised me. And I had a lot of folks coming to me afterwards saying, hey, that was awesome. I would love for us to do all of our training in that way if we can't be in person because it just provided a little bit of flexibility. And I think, again, thinking about the accessibility and inclusivity of our global team members, for a lot of non-native English speakers, it also made it a lot easier for them to move through the content in a way that they could really retain the information, understand what was being taught to them and move, at the, and move at a pace that felt right for them. Because as you know, so often kickoffs become, you know, the first meeting of the day, it goes a little late, and then everyone is in a rush to finish on time afterwards. And you end up rushing through material in a way that doesn't allow for anyone to actually absorb it. And so I think we've found that there's been a higher level of engagement because folks have a bit more flexibility. And I think we're seeing greater retention of that information based on that. It's interesting and encouraging that you got that feedback that people found having that on-demand content really helpful. So two questions coming out of that that perhaps you could address uh, together. Firstly, how, how did you persuade them to get started with it? Because hindsight's a wonderful thing, but often when you ask people to do this kind of training or this kind of work, actually getting them started is, is the trickier part. So how did you persuade them to do that? And secondly, what sort of formats and media did you use in that content that helped to make it engaging, helped non-native English speakers, for instance, and, and made it something that, that they enjoyed and they found really useful? Really good questions. I think for engagement, you know, we did, uh, like any kickoff, we had sort of an anchoring theme. And from an enablement perspective, our team is, has a really good understanding of sort of how we approach our content. We sell a very technical product. And so a lot of our enablement is sort of split between commercial functions. So how do you get better as a salesperson, as a customer success person, as an SDR, and then looking at sort of technical training and enablement. So how do you better understand our our software that we sell, the product that we sell, but more importantly, how do you understand our key customer profile, which are software developers? And so I think for us, we knew that we wanted to carry that model into this event. And so we did a little bit of previewing of content beforehand, giving folks an understanding of what course material they would see, giving them an understanding of what what kind of topics were going to be covered. And while it wasn't perfect, I do think we did a good job of tying the live content that came from some of our executive presenters into the content that folks then went through in the LMS. So it felt like there was a degree of continuity there. So for this event, we focused uh, heavily in our speaker series on having senior leaders from our engineering organization talk about what it's like to lead or engineering teams, what it's like to build engineering teams. What is it that engineering leadership cares about? How do they look at their role within the business and what their business impact is? Because at the end of the day, those are 
they are effectively our customer. So we're really lucky to have a customer within our own organization that we can sort of look to as a model. And then as we moved into the LMS material, it was sort of split between a combination of, you know, how do you talk to these people? What's going to make you more successful commercially in your role? And then looking at more micro-level topics that are related to folks that work in an engineering organization. So we're very fortunate to have a technical trainer in our in our team who is an engineer by trade, who is able to talk about these topics from a very firsthand experience. Of course, getting folks engaged with any event when you're not together is going to be hard. I think there's a lot of distractions. Our thought initially was, okay, if we give a bit more time, it'll provide flexibility for folks to complete it on their own time in a way that fits within their regular work. And we found that for some folks that really did work well. And then for another swath of our team, got a lot of feedback that it was a little bit too undefined. And they found that it was hard to to gauge, oh, I need this amount of time to get this done. Because sure, you can have a timestamp on how long and e-learning courses. But if you aren't fully briefed on what the material is, you could go in with sort of a different, a preconceived notion of what what your engagement might need to look like. And so I think in terms of takeaways for what to change next time, we'll probably deliver that e-learning material in much smaller pieces with more defined timelines, as opposed to this time where it was, okay, you have a 10-hour course series that you have six, seven business days to complete or something like that. And in terms of how we created that material, so before the event, we, like I said, we we had to really scrap our original plan for what this kickoff was going to look like. And working with creative people and being, I would say, a creative person myself, I immediately had a million ideas of things we could do. And, and then I quickly thought to myself, you know what, this is our first virtual event at this scale. This is the first time we plan to kick off on this short of notice. We planned our entire kickoff with about eight weeks lead time, which is much less than we usually have. And I thought to myself, let's focus on quality content delivered as seamlessly as possible with as few variables for something to go wrong. And so for this time, we took up an approach of having our presenters who are from various parts of the business present over a Zoom call the same way that they would as if they had an audience. Uh, And I worked with them on developing that content, developing their presentations. And then we took those recordings and ultimately edited them them down into a more digestible sort of video file. So that was the bulk of how we managed it for material that was coming from outside of the enablement team. From within the enablement team, we used a combination of Camtasia and uh, Articulate Rise 360 uh, to build out more interactive scoring files and typical kind of e-learning video modules. And then from there, for each of the, the courses that we had, we built out a series of short assessments and to sort of pulse check how folks were engaging with the material, what their understanding of it was. And for some topics, we focused that on really simple, multiple choice, effectively memory retention. You know, did you did you catch the thing that someone said in this presentation? And then for more technical topics and topics that related to our product, we kept those a little bit more open-ended because we wanted to test the way and see the ways in which our team would sort of take that technical information and then put it into their own words and make sure that that effective translation would be accurate. And so that was from a facilitation standpoint, 
quite a big lift. I don't know that that would be as accessible to organizations that are that much bigger than us. We are just shy of about 100 people within our revenue team. And I'll be honest, even for us having to grade manually that many assignments uh, quickly became a little bit of a, a tiring exercise. But I do think it was really valuable in starting to understand you know, the folks within our teams who really were nailing the technical topics and could uh, synthesize that information in a way that made sense to them. And then identifying other folks who maybe their understanding of it and their retention of it was excellent, but the ways in which they applied it to a customer conversation might not be as refined as we we would want. So I think it was a really good opportunity to sort of identify some good coaching opportunities. A lot goes into it on the front end in the preparation. And it was interesting as well, you talked about coaching opportunities coming out of that. So how how have your sales leaders, managers, and, and you as a sales enablement team been able to, to leverage what you did at the kickoff to support that, that learning and that coaching ongoing since? So again, looking at it from sort of a two-pronged approach of the commercial versus technical split. So The timing of this year's kickoff was interesting because it was the start of a new role that we had within the organization, which is a commercial trainer. So we were really lucky that the individual in that role had joined the organization prior to our kickoff, did an incredible course at the kickoff that got rave reviews and that we found that was one of the few things where we could, as we looked at reported calls afterwards, immediately see where folks were applying the information that came from that And after the kickoff was the start of a new one-on-one coaching program that we were doing where this trainer goes through regular call review with folks across our team, across sales and customer success. And I think we found that the combination of having more in-depth commercial training within the kickoff and then being able to refer back to that in coaching sessions provided a level of sort of phased out reinforcement that almost was unintentionally by design. I think just the timing of the events, it sort of worked out well that it became an easy anchor point for folks to look back at. And the nice thing too, is that in a growing organization, a kickoff can be a really good way for folks to have something in common when you don't know each other yet. And so we found that on, you know, on a kind of cultural level, it really helped with sort of that rapport building of, you know, folks who maybe hadn't worked with our trainer yet was able to say, oh, The session that you led at the kickoff was really helpful, and these are the questions that I had about it. And on the technical side, a a lot of the the sessions that that trainer led were really focused around some of the go-to-market preparation that we're doing for some new product development. And that was probably the most challenging part from a content development standpoint, because we were trying to build out training for product and feature sets that were still in development. But it actually has allowed for this really amazing kind of rolling enablement schedule of training and content and messaging that we then spread out through the entire quarter. And actually, the last milestone of that is coming up in a couple of weeks. So it'll be about almost three and a half months from when the first touch point on that particular training series started. And so I don't know that we we haven't necessarily looked at it from a sense of, okay, we're going into the kickoff with it being the, the starting point of this in, this go-to-market enablement program, but it sort of turned into that and it did get me and my team thinking about, okay, looking at a rolling release schedule from an enablement perspective is really hard, but it's provided a really amazing opportunity for our team to have 
a very regular touch point of new information and new content that they can leverage within their conversations with prospects and customers. And so I think for us, having that level of engagement early on in our quarter provided folks with a level of confidence to be able to ask questions because they actually knew a little bit about the the topic already. I think when you have a really highly technical product and you're selling into a technical audience, there can be a lot of concern that if I don't know as much as the senior engineering director that I'm talking to, then I can't provide value in this discussion. And, And that's definitely not true. And I think we found that by having this rolling enablement program, it's allowed folks to kind of slowly beef up their knowledge and feel like they have some foundation. And even if they don't have all the answers, they at least have a better understanding of how to ask questions about the things that they don't know. Fantastic. And where does that take you in terms of your next kickoff, in terms of both what you've learned, but also where you're taking that enablement journey? We definitely learned with this one that doubling down on Finding the people within our business that we feel are the best reflection of our customers is a really amazing learning opportunity to see how we can both build off of their knowledge, but also use it as a uh, almost a litmus test for us to understand how well are we aligning ourselves with our customers and with our prospects and our key personas. And so I think as we head into the next kickoff, my team's already planning on looking at, uh, as opposed to a bunch of different topics, what it will look like to focus in on maybe two or three core topics, especially on the technical side, and then build out multiple trainings that are related to that to really be able to move the team through level one, level two, level three understanding of of these materials, which in an ideal world, you're able to do that in the general shake of a quarter but it becomes a lot harder to really dedicate the time to focus on that material and to feel like you can think about that and nothing else. And I think that is what is really special about kickoffs and why I think that they are ultimately still really valuable, even though they require a ton of money and a ton of planning. I think giving yourself that dedicated time to really focus on unique and challenging problems is an amazing opportunity. And I think when you're working with, uh, you know, especially a technical product and customer base, it's invaluable time to really enhance the knowledge that you have there. So I think, you know, isolating our topics, going with a multi-level approach to those as one piece of it. And then the other thing that we're thinking about doing is really getting our team more hands-on with our product from an experiential learning standpoint trying to imbue a bit more of that learn by doing ethos will be really valuable. And in organizations with a slightly less technical product, that's probably something where they're like, oh yeah, we do that all the time. We have our reps demo certified. It's no problem. But for us, it's a really different learning curve. I think there's some really good uh, good tips and good examples in there. And I really like that you know, that continuity of building building that knowledge and and then really embedding it, reinforcing it, and then thinking about how do we deepen people's knowledge and and, and make it more advanced. To take the conversation in a slightly different direction for a moment, you mentioned just now it takes a ton of money and a ton of planning. And I think that's one thing that those that are coming into it running a virtual event for the first time, they they know what their typical budget is for an in-person event. They know how to plan for that. Can you share a little bit around what process you went through and what sort of decisions you made around budget and planning for you, both for your first event, but also where that's taking you in terms of what you've learned for your next one as well? 
to be honest, it was sort of a, I'll admit, a, a bit of a chaotic and confusing journey. You know, I had gone through this really extensive budgeting and review process early in 2019 in advance of this large in-person event I was planning, had secured the biggest budget we'd ever had for a kickoff, was super excited, was starting to look at venues and travel destinations and things like that. And and then it moved to in-person, or I'm sorry, it moved to virtual. And I was immediately like, okay, well, there's no way I can use all of this budget. And like a lot of people, we have a use it or lose it policy. And I also was trying to balance, okay, how can I do something unique with this event, but also not frivolously spend company money that we don't need to spend. So the approach that I took was really looking at What can we cut in the sense of what are the tools and resources that we already have that we don't need to reinvest in or need to spend additional funds on? In terms of the tools and systems that our company uses, we were very lucky to not have kind of the steep uphill climb with getting comfortable in that area in the way that many companies did. So we didn't have to focus on much of the operational aspects of our event, but I did want to think about okay, what are some of the fun and creative things that we can do now that we wouldn't have been able to do in the past because so much of our budget would have gone to travel or would have gone to lodging? And so the first thing I thought about was I want to bring in an external speaker, which is not something that we had done before. Previously, when we had done speaker panels or or an external speaker, we brought in a customer or we brought in um, you know, a partner of the business or something like that. So while there was a cost associated with it, it was not as significant as as hiring an external speaker would be. And then the other piece of it was thinking about how can we make this feel special? As, as hard as kickoffs are to plan, I run on adrenaline the whole time and I'm so happy and it's my favorite time of year because I get to be with my team and I get to be with people I don't see all the time. And I think a lot of enablement leaders and and sales leaders can relate to that. And so my thought was, how do we make this feel like a different kind of workday than just your regular eight to five on Zoom with your team, which while it can be fun sometimes is just a regular workday. So we focused on providing kind of a special swag box to everyone on our team globally. So we worked with an external vendor who helped us uh, come up with a couple of gifts that were then shipped directly to all of our team members worldwide. So, you know, the folks in the U.S., the folks in Japan, the folks in the U.K. each had the same gift. And we decided to really lean into the work from home idea and, and, got everyone branded blankets and mugs and, you know, Korean skincare face masks that were branded and decided to, you know, try to not focus on the pandemic too much. Cause I think at this point, it's the last thing anyone really wants to think about anymore. Um, but really think about, okay, you are at home and how can we make this like a fun and comfortable event? And how can you feel like this is a little bit different? So we sort of tried to, to bring that piece of it. And then we also worked with our our internal operations and finance team around securing budget for folks to be able to expense meals during the event. So, so that you could really focus on your learning, you know, make sure that you could order takeout one night so that you didn't have to think about it. And I think especially trying to think about the people on our team who have family members living with them. It's a lot to ask people to work from home in general. And it's especially a lot to ask folks to be really heads down on learning when you might have a crying three-year-old in the back who really needs your attention. And so just trying to think about the little ways in which we could make things easier for folks was, I think, something that 
I hadn't originally budgeted for, but was really grateful to be able to do for our team. And also able to send really lovely thank you gifts to all of the folks internally who help make our events successful because my my enablement team is small. I mean, including me, it's three people. And on, in addition to our revenue leadership team, we work really extensively with leadership in customer engineering and marketing and product. I mean, basically across our entire business. And so being able to bring other folks from the company into our event and welcome them and provide them with something special felt like a really, a really positive way to kind of build those partnerships. In terms of looking at budget for our next event, now that we know what our foundational tool set is, what are some of the tools that we could use to make the event even more creative and unique and feel a bit different? So I started to look at a couple of vendors around gamification and kind of special event platforms and things like that. At the end of the day, I think a lot of those things are nice and I think provide exponential value for much larger organizations. I think for folks uh, or leading enablement at companies similar to Circle CI, you're probably at a scale where that kind of stuff is fun, but not super necessary. And so I think for me, trying to to provide a little bit of flexibility, but also really you know optimize on spend is important because I still have my eye on the prize for the post-pandemic big in-person kickoff, which after this long of being away from each other and working from home, I, you know, I really hope we can do something super special for our team. And I think it's an interesting uh, question too about what is what do in-person events look like after this? And I, I think I can say with relative certainty for Circle CI that we will probably maintain some blend of in-person and digital learning for our kickoffs moving forward. I think orders of magnitude when your team is growing and when you have a really distributed global team, I, I think it's just going to make sense for for everybody. I've talked to a couple of folks now across enablement and revenue operations about looking at virtual events. And I think the big thing that I recommend to people at this point is to just leave yourself with a little bit of room to play. I know that's not something that, especially in sales organizations, is not always how we like to operate, but there is a lot of flexibility that comes with doing a virtual event in some ways. And I found that being able to lean on that was really nice. I mean, we a great example is we had originally planned to do our event like the first couple of weeks of August. And with the combination of summer holidays and our planning schedule getting behind, we really were like, we could do an event then, but it's not going to be as good as if we did an event three or four weeks later than that. And poof, like that, we were able to move it. And so having some flexibility around things like that and being able to quickly pivot from uh, topical changes within your content and things like that, I think are really valuable. You know, I was I was doing a breakout session planning with my CRO the night before one of our big events. And we just have the flexibility to do that in a way that I don't think you always do when, you know, you're beholden to a contract with a hotel or with an event space. And, you know, you have team events already booked out in an evening and things like that. So that aspect of it can be really valuable. Now, there's also some pitfalls to it being so flexible. I mean, we definitely uh, learned a couple of lessons with our event at this point, but I think it's something that folks can generally feel pretty confident in. I think there's lots to think about there. And I think you're you're right, that combination of being really crystal clear on your goals and your topics and well-planned. And if you have all of those things, you do give yourselves room to be flexible, to play around with ideas and, and to 
find the areas where you can have some fun. Jasmine, you've shared so much information. To me, it really resonated when you talked right at the beginning about really doubling down on what you can do, removing too many variables and making sure that you kind of nail the really important stuff. And I think you know that's a good starting point. But married up, as you've talked about and given examples with how do you make it engaging? How do you make it fun? How do you make it inclusive? And those things are not mutually exclusive. And I think you know that's a real lesson and a, a real story that I take from what you shared. So thank you so much for sharing with us. And, uh, and really good luck and best wishes for your next event. It, sound, it sounds like you're going to take a wealth of learning into that. And I'm sure it'll be a big success. Well, lots to take from Jasmine and Circle CI. My final guest today is Nick Salas, who leads sales enablement at MindTickle. Nick told me the story about how he approached a recent sales event with clear purpose, follow-up, and reinforcement. So the example you're about to hear from Nick shows just how they created outcomes from the program that didn't just increase skills, but have had a much broader payoff for the sales team as a whole. So over to Nick and his story. One of the things that we're constantly thinking about, you know, here at MindTickle, and I, and I think I can probably speak for most of sales enablement, you know, when I say that reinforcement is one of the key areas of sales enablement that oftentimes gets missed or overlooked. And when we're talking about, you know, virtual sales events like SKOs or QBRs or something, you know, the reinforcement aspect of that too often uh, gets overlooked because, you know, we're, we're so focused on the planning and the preparation and the execution that sometimes, you know, once once the once the QBR or once the SKO is complete in sales enablement, we kind of give ourselves a pat on the back and then move on to the next thing. But I've kind of made it a point to to try to put a little more thought into, um, you know, how can we take these key concepts that we spend so much time preparing and researching for and delivering to our sales teams and give them an opportunity to actually put it into practice, right? Put it into action. So at MindTickle, we kind of we kind of go by the the mantra of the, you know, the acronym TSPR, which is teach, show, practice, reinforce. And I try to make it a point to, to not forget the, the last part around the reinforcement. So, so when we were thinking about, you know, how we were going to structure a virtual sales event, you know, the first thing that I try to plan is the theme. When I go to the presenters and I'm talking to them about the, the different topics that we want, want to make sure that they cover, we want to make sure it's in the context of the overall theme that we're trying to push, whether it's product related or competency related, I try to make sure that we're reiterating that theme in some form or fashion. So at a recent uh, virtual uh, sales event, we had the the theme that I chose was around storytelling. You know, storytelling in sales is a cool topic, right? Because there's there's so many different ways to approach it. So my, my approach for this uh, virtual event was firstly around storytelling. So I wanted to make sure that that the presenters themselves had some aspect of, you know, storytelling, to being able to tell impactful customer stories, you know, to our sales teams in the context of their presentation. So we we had some presenters that really latched onto that and got really creative. Our head of services, he gave his whole presentation in the form of, of an actual like storybook and then sprinkled in customer data and, and results into his presentation. So it was, it was really cool. He really latched onto the theme. You know, the, the one thing that I wanted to make sure was that the sales reps were equipped to tell customer stories. So if they weren't telling stories already in their deals, that they had kind of a, re- a renewed interest in doing so because they've they've heard so many good ones. They've heard from our leadership how impactful and 
and how important stories can be. So in, in order to to better reinforce that, um, I put together a, a video role play, what we call a mission. I, I gave them access to our customer case studies and stories. And I said, pick two or three, or if there's not one that's published that you that you closed, let's tell it. Let, let's not keep these story secret. Let's share these these great stories. So the ask as the as reinforcement around this particular virtual event was that the AEs record themselves telling two to three impactful customer stories that they could then, you know, kind of have in their back pocket as they're approaching prospects. But you know, the, the payoff for the rest of the sales team really was that, you know, they have a library now for themselves that they can then go and and access one one of the biggest you know, kind of challenges in sales is, you know, each regional team kind of tends to be siloed a little bit and, you know, being able to collaborate, you know, across regions within sales can be tough. And there's so many best practices and so many cool stories and and things that some teams are doing that other teams should, should know about. And that's, that was kind of my thinking behind, behind executing the, the storytelling um, activity that that we did as part of this virtual event, and and it turned out great. I mean, we we had some reps tell stories that were that were pretty well known, but you know that had pretty compelling metrics behind them. We also had AEs tell stories that we knew that that they were customers. We knew that we had the logo, but we didn't necessarily understand how we got there or what the compelling event was or what the metrics were. So being able to hear those stories firsthand from the you know from the AE who who actually closed it was was really impactful. I really like that reinforcement as you describe it and the payoff for everybody because people talk a lot about gamification of some of the reinforcement tools and and use it sometimes as a bit of a blunt instrument because it's almost as if salespeople are competitive. So if we create create a competition, they're all going to want to join in because they're all going to want to win. And I think you know we all know that that's not really strictly true. You know, there may be a competitive streak, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to join in just because you've created a bit of gamification and a bit of a competition that they can win. You know what you've you've done has a real obvious what's in it for me for those sales guys and for the sales team as a whole, hasn't it? In terms of that that library of case studies that they have. Whenever I'm putting a, a program together, incorporate the three Ps. So what's what's the purpose? What's the process look like? And then what's the payoff? So yeah, I mean, you make a great point. Yeah, gamification in certain instances is good, is fun, and it can be competitive and get the competitive juices flowing. But if there's no purpose behind it, if it's just for the sake of you know getting AEs to interact and compete against each other and the payoff is missed, everybody's time is being wasted. And I think there was a feedback loop in there as well, wasn't there, in terms of you know, how did you get managers involved to look at what was being produced and give feedback to help improve that storytelling capability? So once the once the AEs uploaded their stories, they automatically got routed to their direct manager to review. And some managers gave really good feedback. Some managers even said, you know, this this isn't a this was not interesting to me. I'm not going to remember it. So go go back, recraft your your story, and then re-record. And you know, to me, that's when justified, that's how that's really how an AE learns how to tell better stories is when they get constructive uh, feedback that, you know, that's actually going to help them. Otherwise, it's just everybody kind of patting each other on the back and, you know, saying, you know, good job, you did great, and then kind of moving on to the next thing. So yeah, the, the feedback loop was really important. And then, um, you know, making sure that, you know, over time that we're actually equipping the AEs with tools 
that actually help them tell better stories as, as opposed to telling them to just go and tell a story. That's a good point. So how did you collate and, and what did you deliver in terms of the, the learning content and, and the tools to help them to build those skills? Yeah, so a, a lot of that was kind of sprinkled in throughout the throughout the virtual uh, event that we had. But what I always think has more impact um, on field reps is seeing one of their peers excel at, at, at doing a particular activity and then and then modeling the best practices after that. So, so I, I approached uh, one of our AEs and, and kind of coached him on what, what we were looking for in terms of the activity. And I coached him a little bit on that and then had him kind of give what we call a model response because AEs, they, they, they always want to see what good looks like. So, but the, the combination of, you know, sprinkling in throughout the day, best practices on telling, telling stories from, from all, from cross departmental uh, leaders and, and presentations combined with, with one of their peers kind of delivering what, what we consider a, a best, best in class response that hopefully equipped them at the end of the day to feel confident about, you know, about doing it themselves. And one of the things in sales enablement that I constantly have to remember is I'm not the subject matter expert on hardly anything. <laughs> and so the, such is the case with this storytelling, right? I mean, I'm not a storytelling expert. I needed to make sure that I was reaching out to and collaborating closely with with the frontline managers and it's collating and it's it's aggregating con, you know best practices content from people who are smarter than myself um, and then pushing it out in a way that 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 AEs are going to actually remember it. It's interesting. So for, firstly, I'm really enjoying this story. So uh the storytelling here sounds pretty good. And I'm also really interested in the fact that we spent most of this, we're talking about a virtual event, but we spent most of this conversation talking about your preparation beforehand and how you got everything set up and then what you did to reinforce and, and develop those feedback loops and, and get some of those outcomes and, and payoffs. And I don't think there's a, that's any coincidence because I think you know those, those are the two pieces that actually make yeah. the biggest difference, aren't they? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, totally. So how much um, coaching and guidance did you give to your presenters and your model AE ahead of time to make sure that what they did was really aligned to what you needed? As far as the presenters, we gave them we gave them quite a bit of freedom to kind of do what they thought would be best based on the guidelines. Um, but then we did do dry runs and we would come back with, you know, some recommendations on how they could better incorporate the theme you know, before I start any virtual event, I, I think it's important to to get a poll from the field on what's top of mind and to get get their feedback on what's going to be the best use of your time. You know, so it's important to me that the presenters that they're presenting on what the field is actually asking that what's going to have an impact for them. You know, as they go back to their desks and start selling, so you you kind of have to do a little bit of hand holding there because sales enablement is typically responsible for the success of these events. And so making sure the theme is reiterated through coaching, through inspecting the presentations, through the dry runs, um, you know, through the instructions, you know, I think is is really important. And that's all that's all behind the scenes stuff that the AEs, you know, they shouldn't see it, but they should they should understand how much went into it um, because it had such a great, you know, impact on their role. Finally, we've talked about the before and the after. We, ha- we haven't really talked too much about the during. So can you just share a little bit about what, what your virtual event actually looked like in terms of how you spread it out and what sorts of activities you, you took people through? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I, I got, we got feedback from the field that for these virtual events, we need to 
try to space them out a little more, break them up so that they're not sitting in front of their computers for, you know, six to eight hours during a virtual event. So we decided to break it up into, into two, four hour days uh, with, with, ju- with just 20 minute presentations. So we gave the presenters 20 minutes to get the presentation portion completed. And then I left the last 10 minutes for Q and a before I mention that I should go back a little bit. And as part of the pre-work, uh, I asked the presenters to put together one slide that had the top three objectives of their session on it. And then what their, what the takeaway is going to be, what the best next action coming out of that session should be. And then I had the AEs go through before. So this session, the top three objectives are going to be X, Y, and Z. And then the actionable takeaway at the end of the session is going to be this. And so during the actual uh, session, the AEs have already got kind of a flavor or a sense of what they're going to, what they're going to go through during that particular session. And, and so those last 10 minutes, they were able to, to use if they had additional questions based on both the pre-work and what the presenter um, was able to get out during those 20 minutes. Uh, in concept, it sounds like a great idea, but if I have one kind of takeaway or lesson learned is that it's really, really hard to keep presenters to 20 minutes. <laughs> So, you know, we, you have to kind of become like a, you know, a time master, <laughs> the keeper of the clock. That's a good point. And it's where vetting the slides, preparing your presenters and dry runs are so important, isn't it? So important. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you start getting a sense of, you know, is, is the presenter actually going to keep, be able to keep this to 20 minutes? And if not, like, you know, let's, let's talk about what can be omitted. And there's always the aspect of like, what can be reinforced virtually or in, in kind of an on-demand uh, follow-up versus what what absolutely needs to be communicated in a live session. And then you can start to parse out from there which which pieces you can do live versus what what can we do as a follow-up. That's a good, uh, really good lesson learned, I think, to to wrap up our conversation. Otherwise, we're going to be running way over time on this, uh, <laughs> on this episode as well. <laughs> It's a great story. I think it really does reinforce those messages around how do you drive, yeah, how, how do you drive the behavior change? And so many of those things are really actually quite simple in concept, but pulling them all together. Yeah, you 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 hit the nail on the head. Like it's I mean, it's it's fun to sit here and talk about, but you know, when the rubber hits the road, like there's a lot of preparation, you know, a lot to think about, a lot of coaching you know, frontline manager engagement, the participants have to see the value. So yeah, I mean, it's the the communication of, uh, you know, reiterating the importance, like this is why we're doing this. This is the value that we see into it. And this is, you know, this is the feedback that we heard from you. This is why we're prioritizing this. Um, and then, you know, actually executing that into a meaningful program is, is a challenge, <laughs> but that's why we're in these roles, right? exactly exactly and I think that's a great point to to leave on I think there's loads in there that uh, other companies can learn from and and take ideas from in planning their own kickoff so Nick thank you very much yeah thank you appreciate it a big thank you to my guests Ed Boone of Promote Jasmine Jackson Irwin of Circle CI and Nick Salas of Mindtickle I think there's a lot to take away from all of those experiences. And to me, it's about thinking about the before, what do you do intentionally in terms of purpose and expectation, investing in that upfront planning to make sure that everybody is aligned and prepared, 
making the experience itself engaging, stretching it over time, thinking about the different methods of support across different relationships, thinking about how to fully align it with the business, combining on demand and live delivery, making it inclusive, making it interactive, and and making it something that people feel is a little special and, and different to the norm. And then following up, this is so critical, following up, reinforcing, building on the knowledge and skills that you develop in the SCO, through the year and looking for opportunities to create and stretch on the outcomes at multiple levels. I'll be sharing more on these best practices via the podcast and extra content and guides. So sign up for the Revenue Riser mailing list at revenueriser.com so you don't miss out on any additional uh, and new content that we put out. Thank you once again and check out our other episodes if you haven't listened to them and join us next time. (laughs) 